It is Monday, December the 5th, 2022. Welcome everybody to episode 66 of Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. It is the uh, winter meetings edition of Toe in the Slab. It's a production of John Boy Media as always. It's David Cohn, it's James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Rourke is here as well. The winter meetings are underway. Justin Verlander just agreed to uh, a two-year deal with the Mets for 86 million bucks about an hour or two before we were recording this one. So I'm sure like five minutes after we put this episode out, another big move is going to be made. But uh, nevertheless, the action expected to happen in the coming days in San Diego at the winter meetings. We are going to talk with uh, former GM Dan O'Dowd of MLB Network as well. He gives us some good insight. We'll discuss Jacob deGrom signing with the Rangers as well. The latest on some of the other big name free agents out there. All of it on the table for this episode. Guys, let's get right into the action. The Mets, they move on from Jacob DeGrom rather quickly. Only needed the weekend, and they get Justin Verlander. What are your thoughts? That's exactly right. They needed a big answer in a hurry. Jacob DeGrom, obviously, uh, part of the Mount Rushmore of great Mets pitchers. I mean, there's Tom Seaver, there's Dwight Gooden, and there's Jake DeGrom, and then then the rest of us that, that, that ever pitched for the Mets, maybe Jerry Kuzman in there. But, yeah, I mean, that's a huge blow to the Mets fan base. And so the, the quick answer is, you know what, next best is Justin Verlander, uh, a Hall of Famer in his own right, uh, coming off of Tommy John surgery. He's in great shape. He's talking about wanting to get to 4,000 strikeouts. He wants to pitch as long as he can. Uh, and he's got the body to do it and the stuff to do it. And he's coming off a Cy Young Award. So, yeah, you, you talk about age, you kind of throw it out the window with with, with Justin Verlander because uh, he, he's got a, a whole new warranty on his elbow. He just had Tommy John late in his career. So he should be good to go for, for a while. And the way he pitches his stuff, to me, uh, translates into, you know, weathering pretty well. It should be able to sustain his stuff moving forward, at least for the next couple or three years. It's about as good a pivot as you can make. You lose somebody like Jacob deGrom, like Coney said, it's a huge blow. But you pick up Verlander, is, he has his issues, deGrom has his issues, older pitchers, injury history, we, we know all that. But when you have guys at that level, you know the old saying, uh, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal. Well, in this case, there's no such thing as a bad two-year deal for a guy like Justin Verlander. Everyone has the red flags. I mean, it's never more evident than with these these pitchers that are at the top of the, the free agent market this year. DeGrom has his red flags. Verlander with his age. I agree with you, David. He's got a second life after having Tommy John surgery. So even at 40, you know, it's going to allow him to potentially pitch into his mid-40s. Off the surface, the only question that I continue to ask myself when trying to figure out if the Mets are in a better position now with Verlander or DeGrom, I say, hey, DeGrom at five and 185 or Verlander at two and 86 with a potential third-year option. Which deal are you more comfortable with given? For me, it, it was Justin Verlander. Uh, normally, I would say yes, just to, you know, in a vacuum, if you're looking at the two deals. But I'm looking at the equity that Jacob DeGrom had built up with the Mets fan base. And to me, I think that, that matters. And, and, you know, and that, that's with respect to Aaron Judge, too, as well. I think that those players are more valuable to the teams they're coming from. And that's just my opinion. But I think that, uh, you know, when Jacob deGrom pitched at City Field, it was an event uh, and that the fan base really lit up. The ratings were up for that. Uh, the people went to the ballpark. They hopped on the subway and went out to City Field because he, you knew Jacob deGrom was pitching that night. So, you know, that matters. 
Verlander's a Hall of Famer. He's great, but it's going to take a while for him to build up, build up that that equity with a new fan base and a tough fan base. And the Mets are a tough fan base, without a doubt. They very they're very knowledgeable. They expect a lot. Certainly, there'll be a honeymoon phase with him, so to speak. But I, boy, that's you know, Jacob Degrom's loss was huge. So if it were up to me, I would have taken probably the Jacob Degrom deal, even at though even at those numbers, because of the equity that he had built up with the fan base the Mets could afford to take a bigger risk in keeping their own guy and keeping a franchise icon like DeGrom higher risk, but also higher reward. The Rangers uh, we, look, we talked about it in the last couple of episodes, how uncomfortable would teams need to get to attract a, a star free agent DeGrom right at the top of the list for the free agent pitchers. He gets a five-year deal. We were talking about, the comfort of giving a three or four year deal out, they go to a fifth year. But why was this a deal that the Rangers had to make? Wow. Even the Rangers are on the move. I mean, obviously they, when you think about what the Houston Astros have done in Texas, just them and of, of themselves, just looking across the way at the Astros is enough of an incentive. And then obviously uh, you look at the, the new ballpark down there and it's not just a new ballpark anymore. It's a new city. They have all the infrastructure around that new ballpark down in Arlington. That really means a lot. You've got Jerry Jones and his Cowboy Stadium right next door. It is really remarkable to see how that place is growing. And that's kind of the the nirvana that, that major league owners are looking for. Or any owners in any sports are looking for. It's the come early, stay late infrastructure that draws people in. So, yeah, you're building something much bigger down there. And they need to win. They need a championship. They've never had one. So they, they, they certainly need one. The Rangers are looking to break new ground down there. They've got tremendous resources and yeah, they're, they're willing to play. And that, that that's why, you know, that they, they, they put their best foot forward and they went after DeGrom. DeGrom didn't need to go back with the bets with, with, with his offer. He wasn't shopping offers, you know, they blew him away and they asked what they had to do. And uh, you know, I give them credit. You know, it's, it's not about, uber efficiency and maximizing dollars. It's about making the big splash and going for it. You know, that that's what San Diego got last year when they traded for Juan Soto, they got lines around the block to buy season tickets for next year because of the Juan Soto trade. You know, it's that you light up your fan base. It's what Philadelphia did this year by getting to the world series. You lit up the fan base and gave them the entertainment value. We're still in the entertainment business. It's not about, you know, uh, you know, war per dollars or, you know, being, being so efficient here. Well, we could have done this deal. Or you let's slice it this way. And Oh, wait a minute. We overpaid by 5 million. No, it's not what it's about here. It's about the entertainment business. And Texas understands that. And they're trying to build something down there. And Texas, they, they shouldn't be, and they're probably not done yet. Their payroll estimate right now on fan graphs is about 170 million. This is a big market team and they're still a little behind what their payroll was in the mid 2010s. So they're going to keep adding. You don't make the two big splashes that they made last year with Seager and Simeon and then add Jacob DeGrom and say, oh, well, that's it for us. They're going to they're going to keep adding. And that means they could conceivably bring in a guy like Carlos Rodon as well. Went big in the middle of the infield last year. Maybe they go big in the rotation with two pieces uh, in, in the 2022 offseason. David, when we were talking with, with Dan O'Dowd, did I hear you correctly? I, I believe you said you think that Jacob deGrom's best pitching is still in front of him. I think, think potentially, that? yeah, stylistically. Okay. Now, you know, obviously, 
nobody has a crystal ball as far as the medicals go, you know, how healthy he will be throughout this deal. But certainly from a stylistic standpoint, he's shown the ability and the aptitude to throw more than just two pitches. He's just never really had to rely on more than two pitches because he has such great, a great combination of velocity and control. I've never seen somebody throw as hard as he does as precisely as he does, other than maybe Mariano Rivera with his cutter over the, over the years in terms of high velocity, high movement and control. That's what Mariano Rivera had. Jacob deGrom's kind of in that category that he can just paint that high velocity fastball over and over with a slider and be a two pitch pitcher for the most part and get away with it. He's got four pitches. He's got a change up and a curveball to go with it. I think as he ages on down the road, He'll learn how to use those other two pitches more. I think the aptitude's there for him to kind of adjust and and uh, and make make those kind of uh, changes as as he moves on through that contract. All right, we talked about the shortstop market in last episode, kind of needing to wait for Aaron Judge to make his decision. The, the pitching market obviously did not need to have that happen. It's already off and running. But as it pertains to Aaron Judge. Uh, some new information. The Yankees reportedly made an offer, eight years, $300 million. Multiple reports are suggesting that Judge could make a decision before the end of the winter meetings, which happens on Wednesday. At this moment, guys, how, how likely is a return to the Yankees for Judge? And it's funny because people are kind of just turning their nose up on that eight-year offer for $300 million. What else is it going to take for Judge to say yes to a Yankee offer? Well, you know, James and I have talked about this quite a bit in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the free agency market. It's the first time he's had a chance to truly find his value. And we look about the, the compensation system, the way it's structured. He's been under contractual control for the first six years of his major league career. And then uh, including what the time he spent in the minor leagues as well. So that's why he's approaching 31 years old after getting signed out of college almost, what, nine years ago. It took him a, this long because of the structure of the compensation system and the con contractual control to actually find out what his true value is. So I don't blame him one bit for going out there and finding out. And the only way you find out, and that's what Marvin Miller understood was the only way you really find out your true value is to go out there and get other teams in an unobstructed free agency way where anybody can sign you just for dollars. And, and certainly there's still a compensation uh, pick, you know, uh, uh, attached to him in terms of, of uh, the, the, you know, the way uh, the draft picks are structured now. But, you know, for me, it's what's it going to take to sign Aaron Judge? What is he worth? I don't know that, the, you know, I said this before the year he just had. And the reason I think he's so much more valuable to the Yankees is the surplus value the Yankees have gotten out of Judge over these six years, not just over the last year. Certainly tremendous surplus value paying a guy 17 million that, that hit 62 home runs and, and had that kind of historical year and the impact that, that that had on the Yankees in terms of their television ratings, in terms of just lighting up the fan base. Uh, there's so many different revenue streams that are directly connected right to Aaron Judge. You know, what was his worth? Could you put a price on what he was just singular year? What was that one year worth for Aaron Judge last year? I mean, that's I don't know if you could put a price on it. 50 million? A hundred million. I don't know. I'm, maybe even more. I don't I, know. <laughs> it, it, it's ironic because if we go back to the beginning of the regular season, when the Yankees indicated that they made an offer to him just under 220 million, everyone was kind of like, oh, that, that sounds pretty reasonable. Like, you know, you can't fault either side. Judge bet on himself goes on to set the new record in the American league for home runs. And now we're looking at 300 million, the latest Yankee offer. And we're kind of saying to ourselves, man, 
Knights, I think they're going to have to go higher here. That may not be enough. So the difference there, 85 million, that doesn't seem like it's enough. It is wild to wrap your head around. It is, James. You go ahead. We, we've talked about this so much, the concept of this and free agency and value. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm interested in your opinion. So, you know, eight for 300 is a gigantic offer and it's pretty reasonable, I think, for both sides. It, and at the same time, though, it's, a, it's supposed to be a competition. So we don't even know if there are other offers out there yet. And, you know, if the Giants want to try and hurdle over that, knock yourself out. But until, other teams enter the fray. That's a pretty reasonable uh, offer that's sitting out there, but we just got to wait and see when the dust settles. Now talk about putting a dot. It's hard to put a dollar sign on, on the value of a, of a, of a season, especially when it's somebody like judge, who's one of the few people in the game who actually moves the needle off the field. Um, but just looking at fan graphs here, they, you can look at the money that goes to free agents and try and pin down the dollar, uh, cost per win. Well, Fangraphs had judged at 11.4 war last year, one of the great seasons in, in recent history. So the, the dollars to war translation there is about $91 million. So you talk about the, the 17, 19, 21 million that was, that was up in the air this year uh, for the Yankees and arbitration with judge, the value of judges season just on the field was astronomical. Then you add in the, ancillary benefits of the home run chase and ticket sales and TV ratings and everything. This is a, a one of a kind player. One more item to get to before we get to Dan O'Dowd at MLB network, uh, the hall of fame, 16 person errors committee. They unanimously voted Fred McGriff into the hall of fame on Sunday night. There were some notable voting results as again, 12 votes were needed to gain election on this errors committee. Don Mattingly was on the ballot as well. He received eight votes. Kurt Schilling received seven. Dale Murphy with six. And then Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Rafael Palmero, Albert Bell, they all received fewer than four. So one, want to extend congratulations to Fred McGriff, Crime Dog getting in, getting all 16 votes. James, I think you were the one who said last week you thought that McGriff was, was going to get in. And I... I'm kind of curious about the other voting results, maybe more than McGriff's election here. Like, do these voting results tell us anything about the future chances of the listed candidates who missed out this time around? Oh, James, I'll defer to you on this. Well, a quick victory, a quick victory lap yes. right out of the gate, because I, I did say that McGriff would uh, would get in, I think. And and also that didn't think Bonds and Clemens were going to get particularly close with it with a veterans committee. Uh, under this format and uh, they got fewer than four now as Justin laid out 16 votes to McGriff unanimous eight for Mattingly seven for Schilling six for Murphy that means there's only 11 potential votes left on the table that go to the other four guys Bonds Clemens Palmero, and Bell they get fewer than four would not surprise me if if they didn't get any support at all so I think looking down the road I think the door is closed under this current format and this kind of committee for bonds and Clemens to get in. I thought it was uh, unusual to even have them make the ballot in this first year, since they just fell off the writer's ballot last year for them to go right back into the well. I didn't think they were going to get much traction and they didn't. And I don't think it's going to be, I don't think how, I don't know how that's going to change by 2025. 
Yeah. Well, once again, my whole argument on this whole thing, you know, we all have our internal biases, right? Every everybody has their own bias based on your background, you know, what what you saw, what what fan, what team you're a fan of, what team you played for. Uh, and that's no different here. I mean, you know, a lot of these, some of these guys on on that committee, the player side, played with Fred McGriff. You know, similar to Harold Baines. You know, there, there's always going to be sort of that inside track of of internal bias coming to the forefront. And I'm not accusing anybody of doing anything wrong. It's just just part of, part of the facts of, of the nature of, of human beings and our own bias. Now, with all that being said, I still think that the bar is too high for the Hall of Fame, generally speaking. Um, I understand it's different than other sports. There's a long history. The numbers of baseball mean so much. That's where the steroids come in compared to other sports. Other sports tend to kind of get past that point, but the home run record, as we saw, is so valuable and Aaron judges chase. But I still think that if there's not room in the Hall of Fame for somebody that had a peak like Don Manningly, then maybe we're, maybe the bar is a little too high because when you think about what he meant to the New York Yankees fan base, how beloved he is, how high his peak was, and yes, his career was shortened by injuries, but the classic case is the quantity versus quality argument. You know, did he did he play twenty years and accumulate a bunch of stats, or did he have a really high peak and then maybe you know was was hurt by his back injury? You know. It, that, that's always the big debate, quality over quantity. But Don Manningly, to me, I don't know. I mean, I know that here's my own internal bias because I was a teammate of Donnie. So, you know, I, maybe I'd have to recuse myself from that vote if I ever got on that committee somehow, some way. But I just think there, there got, there's got to be a little bit lower bar for guys like Don Manningly and even Dale Murphy for that, for that example. Because there was a point in time where both of those guys, whether it was a five-year stretch or seven-year stretch, were the best players in the game. We're the best players in each league. Now, maybe it wasn't long enough. Maybe they didn't accumulate enough numbers, but there was a stretch there where those, those were the guys. That was it. You know, they were the MVP. So I don't know. You know, I, I still say the bar's too high, but, but, you know, I get it. I get it. it's a hall of fame and, and the guys that are in the hall of fame that are now on that committee and voting want to keep it that way. It's an exclusive committee. It's a, an exclusive club. So they're, you know, their, their internal bias is going to say, Hey, wait a minute. We, we, we're not going to let everybody in this club, you know, we're already in, so let's protect it a little bit. But, you know, my overall argument once again, is that you know, there, there's players that are deserving. It's not about comparing, well, this guy's better than that guy. It's about lowering the bar just a little bit. So that guys like Madden Lee can get in. I'm with you. I'm, I'm in lockstep with you on that, David. Uh, be interesting to see what happens in three years when this group of uh, player is uh, up for reelection via this committee once more. Uh, let's get to our chat with Dan O'Dowd. Dan was the general manager of the Colorado Rockies for 14 years. He won a pennant in 2007. Uh, he was a he was a John Hart disciple, working in Cleveland, and Baltimore before then, before his Rockies tenure. He's been with MLB Network since 2015. He's in San Diego right now for the winter meetings, part of their wall-to-wall winter meetings coverage. And Dan O'Dowd, uh, gracious enough to give us some time this week here on Tone the Slab pitching with david Cohn. dan thanks so much for joining us here on towing the slab we're recording this maybe 90 minutes after the news broke that justin verlander signed with the mets two years 86 million uh your thoughts on justin verlander teaming up with max scherzer at the top of that mets rotation well i'm actually going to ask david a lot of questions once i get done here uh <laughs> talking about it. i i you know i think the industry as a whole is going to look at this as a great signing and it's certainly a great uh, rebound from losing 
out on Jacob DeGrom, but um, I don't think the Mets ever should have lost Jacob DeGrom personally. I mean, when you, Justin Verlander is 40 years old, he's going to pitch at 40, 41. Jacob's going to pitch this year at 35. His five years, he won't even turn 40. And uh, I grew up a Met fan uh, growing up in the area. And, you know, I think of Tom Seaver, I think of Dwight Gooden. When in my career, when you see talent that, that is jaw dropping, you don't let talent leave. Even with some of the challenges the talent may have had with injury histories. And so I just, I'm struggling with the fact that uh, this market now with this owner would let uh, this special talent get away from you unless, you know, the kid just didn't want to pitch there. Uh, he's just, you know, really grew up in, in Florida. It's maybe a smaller time, you know, a smaller market would have been better for him. I don't know the context, any of that. I just know when Jacob deGrom pitches, even if it's only 20, 25 starts a year, it is special. And I think his best pitching is still in front of him once he figures out that he doesn't have to throw every pitch 99, 100 miles an hour, if he ever figures that out. But keep in mind, he's thrown almost 1,200 less pitches through the age of, I mean, innings pitch through the age of 34 than JV has through the age of 34. So I, I think I just have a little bit of a different take. I, I think Justin Berlin is a great pitcher. I think he'll be good for the Mets. I'm just, I'm a big believer that Jacob DeGrom is a unicorn in our game. So I'd like to get David's, you know, um, thought on that. You know, you know, actually, I, I think we probably see eye to eye on that. You know, Jacob DeGrom really, I think, has just scratched the surface, stylistically speaking. I mean, he's kind of gotten away with he, He's an old school guy. He reminds me a little bit, you know, on a lesser uh, scale of Brett Saberhagen, who'd go through the yeah, lineup once great. or twice just with two pitches and then break out his curveball on the third time through the order. Jacob DeGrom's got change. He's got a change up. He's got a curveball that he's toyed with here and there. There were several starts he never even used those pitches, I think, on down the line. He can get into that. He has the aptitude to use those pitches as well. He just hasn't had to. He could paint that that 99-mile-an-hour fastball in the outside corner all day long, get through the lineup once, maybe even twice with the slider, and then here comes the other pitches. I think we're going to see that version of DeGrom on down the road. I'm with you. He had, He's had the injury problems the last couple of years, but even you look at 2021, he had over four war in a season of 15 starts. So – even if the expectations are that he makes 20, 22, 25 starts, if they're that elite, if they're Jacob deGrom games, you live with it and say, we're going to get a lot of value anyway. So do we think that the, uh, in terms of what deGrom was thinking, because everything that we heard is that he kind of never went back to the Mets to say, Hey, can you match this five-year offer from Texas? So did, did he know that the Mets weren't going to be swimming in the five-year offer pool, or he just didn't want to be in New York anymore? What do you th guys think? Well, from a GM perspective, I think he would know. Uh, I think his agent would probably have a pretty good idea of um, where the Mets were at or where they were willing to go. But, God, when you've spent your whole career in one place, I would think you would still go back just to find out what they would really where they were at and what they wanted to do. So that led me to, to surmise with no basis for this whatsoever to say in reality, maybe he really didn't want to go back there. It makes you wonder, Dan. Yeah, at this point, uh, you know, you, this sort of, you know, my uh, my question for you would be, 
you know, I, we should we we tend to think of certain players that are homegrown as being more valuable to that particular organization and the equity that Degrom had built up with the fan base and the legendary status that he had. Certainly, it's hard to put a value on that, a quantitative value on, on what he meant to the fan base. But it's got to be, you know, when I look at Aaron Judge, you know, as as an example, what he meant to the fan base this year for the New York Yankees. The Yankees paid him seventeen million dollars. I could argue that he was worth a hundred million compared to the ratings on the television side and the type of year he had individually and type of merchandising that they sold. I mean, all the Jagram jerseys, all the judge jerseys, all the equity they had built up with their fan base. Boy, that to me is a, a real lost opportunity. It's going to be a big hole to feel Phil. If, uh, if you judge know, leaves, David, obviously too. Yeah. I'm a big believer that, you know, in all of our careers, no matter what, look at all the great players you played with, but when you look back at your career, you could probably count, and, and you played with some great players, but I would challenge you, you probably couldn't count more than 10 that were like, take your breath away type guys. And so from a GM perspective, you know, I was blessed to be around guys like um, as crazy as he was Albert Bell and Manny Ramirez and Kenny Lofton in Colorado it was Todd Helton and Tulo had just incredible talent, Jim Tomey in Cleveland, you never, ever let those players get to the position these two organizations have now let their players get to. You just don't. You, you just don't. When Jacob DeGrom signed that $128 million deal and went out and was like the best pitcher in the planet, right then and there, you go back in and redo that deal and extend him so you're never into this position. And I think large market teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers have done this too, to a great degree up until the bet signing, they had a lot of pressure to sign him is that they figure since we're a large market team, I'm going to let this player play, play year to year, because I think I'm going to get better performance out of them. I don't risk injury with that. And then because I'm a large market team, I can sign them because I have the money to do that when I have to, that doesn't necessarily play out all the time that way. And I just don't think you ever should put your franchise into the type of position that these two organizations put these two players in because you just never know. I'm going to give you another one. Uh, the Red Sox with Xander Bogarts, because I agree with you. Like they're letting them reach a, a certain spot where either a they're confident that they're going to be able to resign them. And maybe there's a, a sense of cockiness mixed in there as well, where they you know are thinking a little too much of themselves, but also maybe the real intention is that they just don't want them back. So we already see DeGrom go to another team. We've seen Justin Verlander go to the, another team. And you can mention the Astros in that same scenario with Verlander here. When you take a look at the top tier of free agents that are left here, which player has the best chance of re-signing with the team that he ended last season with? Judge, he's the only one for me. I see, I, I think in the Red Sox case, we have a new generation of GMs. And I, you know, and uh, I know you guys work for Yankees and Yes Network, but I can be critical because I don't. Um, <laughs> is that I've even seen a change in the Yankee organization over the years that I thought the Yankees, when I was the GM, I thought the Yankees were one of the better baseball organizations in the game. Baseball men making baseball decisions that were reflective of teams on the field that were like perfectly put together. I feel there's a ton of organization. I think the Red Sox are being run this way too, where they look at every contract decision like a stock in a portfolio of how every contract, they have to get value from that contract. At the end of the day, they need positive value from the dollars that they commit. Sometimes the game just doesn't work that way. 
So like in Bogart's case, I don't think they want him back. I think when they signed Story, they had every intention for this to happen. I'd argue that the bigger mistake they're making is with Devers, who is, I think is a generational type hitter that just doesn't come along very often. And I think they look at their system and say, we want this Marcus Mayer kid to be our second baseman or shortstop because we can move Story back to second. So I think all of this is just a facade to try to show the fans that we have somewhat interest in them. But I think the teams that are so value-driven in their contract decisions end up making decisions that you look at it and go, there's no common sense involved in this. Aaron Judge in this particular situation right now, there's no common sense involved that he should be in this situation with this type of franchise. And what he's meant to this type of franchise, not just this year, I mean, he's like an impossible type of guy to find where he's a great player. He causes no drama off the field. He plays the game the right way, and he's the consummate teammate. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I didn't run across many type of guys in my career that checked all those kind of boxes. So sorry to get on a rant there. Not at all. Not I. You know, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the uh, – there seems to be uh, the chase to be uber efficient in, in the decisions of the front office. And what's lacking is kind of the diversity and how the pieces fit together, kind of to your point, what you're saying, and, and in terms of the value, too, of entertainment. Now, you know, I look at this year, I look at the Phillies as, the, you know, the story they had this year of getting all the way to the World Series is the last seed. And, and I compare that to 2007 when you were with the Rockies and you guys went on that tear at the end and then swept your way to the World Series and what that meant to the fan base. I remember watching your fan base go nuts in 2007, and I saw it in Philly. They're greasing the poles in Philly this year when they made it to the world series, the value of that kind of a run to a franchise uh, based on your experience, I, you know, I think it's en- enormous, but what was that like in 07? David, it's, I can't even put it into words. You know, um, I get a little aggra- aggravated at times when people say, well, you just went on a great run. The reality it is we had gone through a massive rebuild. Um, when I had gone to Colorado, it's a, it's a really interesting story. Probably don't have enough time to get into it, but I had laid out this, long-term vision for the franchise based upon my experience and what we had done in Cleveland, knowing I was inheriting a franchise that just didn't have a whole lot of talent. I wasn't six months into that job when the owner at the time, Jerry McMorris, walked to my office and said, hey, by the way, we're not doing that plan um, because he was concerned about lost revenue from ticket holders and things of that nature. So we try to win very quickly. That never works. And that didn't work there. That's the failed signings of Hampton and Nagel you can't short, short circuit the process. So we went through a massive rebuild and we started to see this group of homegrown players coming through the system. And so we were really frustrated in those seven because we thought we would be better than what we were throughout the course of the year. So finally, when we took off, it was kind of a realization like, gosh, darn, we should have, we felt like we should have been playing this way, you know, the entire year. And I will say that if we didn't have the 10 days off between sweeping Arizona and playing the Red Sox, it would have been a way more compelling World Series than it turned out to be. Sounds a lot like this year's Phillies, where you look at the team and say, wow, that's not a true talent 87 or 88 win team. That's a team that, that's better than that. Yeah, I, I really respect what David did this year uh, because he inherited a team that was flawed. And yet he then went double down and built on the flaws. Um, but what he did do by building on that, he's, he bought in the right kind of players. And that was the team that had one heartbeat. And that was a team of really grown, mature men that competed their butt off and for one another. And you really could see in their style of play, 
I'll bet they did that. And then he made really smart moves at the trading deadline with Sosa and Marsh to complement their, you know, their lack of defense that they had on the field. So they made really good baseball decisions in Philly this year. So I was really happy for them. Dan, you mentioned the names, Danny Nagel, Mike Hampton. We'll refrain from mentioning them too many times in the, in this. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. That those two signings though, they happened, I believe both happened at the winter meetings in, in 2000. Was it during the meetings? What? No, well, the Hampton thing was, yeah, but he okay. went there because of the school systems in Colorado, if you remember, Absolutely. that was his line. Yes. That was a cringeworthy line when he came out of his <laughs> mouth, by the way. Um, Nagel came thereafter, um, and so, uh, but go ahead. Yeah, but no, I, I bring them up because you had to sell the Rockies on, at the time, two big free agent arms. So other, Just money. Yeah, other, other, other than with money, though. <laughs> that was uh, it. May, maybe it is it was, just money. It wasn't. Okay. It was. In this case, it was truly just money. You know, the, the funny part of it was we, we had the highest offer in Hampton, but the St. Louis Cardinals were right next to us. In hindsight, now, I wish the Cardinals had actually been ahead of us. Um, but I, I think in, in Denny's case, I think we just offered more money than anybody was going to offer him on the marketplace. I think it was definitely just money decisions. And honestly, that happens a lot within the game. I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. So, so present day here, you have the Rangers obviously paying DeGrom what they paid him. Maybe they're still in the mix to bring on a guy like Carlos Rodon. The Giants linked to Aaron Judge. What are these teams who want to profess to these star free agents that, hey, we are ready to win consistently? What are they selling them on other than money? Uh, well, I, I think in Texas case, it's a vision of what they did last year. Uh, players that, that got coming through the system. And their overall vision of how that's going to merge and become one. Um, in San Francisco case, they've got a long legacy of winning there. I mean, they've, they've put good teams on the field. They've got a history of winning. They've got a history of high payrolls. Um, and they won 107 games just two years ago. And they didn't have an awful year this year. I mean, the team got in with 87 wins and they had 81. And so I think they have got a pretty compelling story to tell Aaron, especially him growing up, you know, idolizing the team and growing up a fan of the Giants. And so I think it's a danger to the Yankees, but I've always, I said this all along, I think for him to leave, they've got to kind of do what uh, the Rangers did with uh, DeGrom, which is to offer him some phenomenally large money for a large amount of time that really puts the Yankees in a precarious position about how they're going to get value out of that type of contract. You know, Dan, I guess another question I had, I was always fascinated by, you know, general managers or, you know, team architects, you know, obviously you can recognize talent and you have the money and you can just throw money at them. And I know money talks, but at the same time, how do you factor in the character issue? You mentioned that with Aaron Judge, you had it in Colorado with somebody like, a, you know, a Matt Holiday or even a Todd Helton, who I think is a Hall of Famer. That's another question I had for you there is your opinion on Todd Helton and his career and where he stands. But how do you how do you get information nowadays? It seems like that's that's kind of a blind spot for the analytics departments, the cultural issue, the background issue. What type of yeah, guy culty. Is yeah. yeah, the human analytics part of the game. Right. I think exactly. it's the whole I think the two things in the game that are the holy grail are injury prevention and right up there are human analytics. Um, two things that uh, good GMs chase in the game. One, they chase talent. Um, two, but they chase talent with character because the second thing they chase is great culture. You can't have great culture without good character. And so when you trade, when you, when your sole issue is talent, you're going to fill a team that's really talented with bad character and they're never going to play as one. 
And so, David, I, I think you spent a lot of time. I mean, in my case, in my history, the greatest information that I was able to find were from people that were clubbies, radio and TV guys, um, coaches that had been there at one point in time that are no longer there. And then uh, I had a network of players that I trusted within the industry. And so I made all those calls myself. I didn't want to ever get information from a third party that could decipher what I was trying to get to on each and every player. And the reason I did that, because I made so many mistakes earlier in my career of adding players that I thought had good character that didn't have good character. Um, and so I took that onus on myself. I never delegated that at all, but I, I would trust my trainers with the information that they would collect because trainer to trainer information is some of the most impactful information I ever got in the game. Dan, how are some rule changes for 2023 impacting free agent decisions for teams? I don't think any right now. Um, I think they're chasing talent right now only. I don't think they're, um, I mean, I, I love some of the rule changes personally, but I, I don't, there's no second basements that are really good in this year's market to begin with. And so the shortstops that everybody's chasing right now, I think the only one that's going to get affected range rise is Bogarts by having to play both feet on the dirt. Other than, other than that, I think, you know, Correa, Swanson, and Turner just are really good at playing the position. I don't think it's going to affect them dramatically. Um, and I don't think they know the effect on pitching with velocity, with less time in between pitches until we actually begin to see that ourselves. So I, I don't think it's having a dramatic effect on this year's market. You know, the thing on the positioning part of it, they're still going to position players. Like the guys that are thinking they're going to get hits in the four holes, not going to happen. They're just going to take that second base when they're going to put it at four. Hole. What's going to happen is the lack of range to the backhand side is going to be dramatically affected. So, um, and I do think that's going to change the game for the better, but I still think we're going to still see dramatic shifts in place. I think we're just going to see it a different way. You think we'll see two outfielders and maybe bring bring an outfielder in and play short right field against the big lefties? Or you, how creative do you think we'll we'll see some of these alignments? I think we're going to see some some crazy. I think we could see David where your center fielder, your right field, your left fielder comes over and plays more center fielder, and your center fielder is going to come over and play that uh, I call it the Manny Machado role, um, that short right field, and your right fielder is going to play a little bit deeper. I think we'll see. And then they're going to outlaw that eventually where everybody's going to have to stay in a quadrant. <laughs> right, uh, right. I actually wish they had done the quadrant over second base because, you know, as a hitter, when you square up a ball and hit a line drive up the middle, that always should be a hit. By not making the shortstop play over a little bit more, some of that's still not going to be a hit. So anyway, maybe we'll get to that. All right, Dan, let's wrap this up with some uh, free agent rapid fire. I'm, I'm going to give you a name on the free agent market. You just let us know where you think they're going to land. And we're a pitching podcast, so we're going to start with the best remaining pitcher on the market, Carlos Rodon. Oh, guys, I actually, when I read today, he's looking for six years. I have no idea who's going to give him a six-year deal. So I'll say San Diego, because they do things I never understand anyway. <laughs> Aaron Judge. I think he ends up back in New York. Carlos Correa. Um, I think he ends up in San Francisco. Trey Turner. Uh, Philadelphia. Continuing with the shortstops here, uh, Xander Bogarts. L.A., All right. meaning Dodgers. And uh, Dansby Swanson. Back to Atlanta. Wow, okay. If, if not Atlanta, the Cubs. Okay. So, David 
tells the story of him knocking on teams' doors at the winter meetings when he was a player looking for his next big contract. Your time running a team, as, as you, you know, if you could leave us with something here, in your time running a team, is there an example of the, you know, an example that I guess captures the nature of what teams are going through this week at the winter meetings? <laughs> I just had so many agents that I can't really say their name that <laughs> would come up to come up to my suite and uh, tell me exactly the parameters of looking for a deal. And then I wouldn't be an hour later. They'd sign a deal that completely different than what they just talked to me about in my suite. Uh, and that happened to me over and over again. But I do have a funny trait. Uh, my first year on the job in 99, um, when I took the job, Jimmy Leland signed a lineup card and gave it to me and said, you have no idea what you've just done to your career. That's the first thing he said to me. It turned out to be pretty prophetic, to be quite honest. And he said, um, you have two players on this team that hate each other and they can't coexist. I respectfully won't say the two players. You can follow the trades I made in 99. Uh, but one of them was that I was making a deal with um, Milwaukee. And there was the, uh, Tampa Bay was involved. There were, there were three teams involved. It was a multiply complex day that fell apart at the end because I couldn't get Jimmy Haynes from the Oakland A's. So I finally called Billy Bean up and said, dude, and Billy's a dear friend of mine. I said, I've worked my ass off on this deal, but I need Jimmy Haynes. He goes, oh, how many players are involved in this deal? He goes, oh, I don't need to keep Jimmy Haynes. Give me so-and-so. And we got Jimmy Haynes done. The whole deal took like three days, and Jimmy Haynes got done in a five-minute conversation with Billy Bean. And that's the way the game used to be. Uh, in our game, and I, I and I miss those those kind of conversations because they were were so engaging. We used to go sit in Jack McKeon's suite early on in my career, and he'd smoke cigars and tell us about every deal he made from the inception of his career and how they came about. And I could have sat there and listened to him for days, talk about uh, Trader Jack and the things that he did. I mean, those those days I can tell you were way different than what happens today. I can tell you guys near the end of my career, we didn't meet with teams; everybody just texted one another. No one went to each other's suites. Most of the joy of this winter meetings was actually going to each other's suites and sharing more stories on top of the trades. So I miss those days. Here, here, definitely. Yeah. The human element thing of the past. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Anyway, great. Thank you. Thanks guys for having me on. I really enjoyed being on with you guys. Yeah. We appreciate thanks, you Dan. giving appreciate us some time. It. Big thanks to Dan O'Dowd for joining us there. Again, he's in San Diego with the winter meetings and their wall to wall coverage on MLB Network. And Dan hit the uh, nail right on the head with one of the the rapid-fire answers that he gave with us as it pertains to Trey Turner because we saw that the shortstop market, guys, apparently is not going to wait for Aaron Judge, or at least one of the big shortstops. Uh, Trey Turner, multiple reports saying that he is signing with the Phillies for 11 years and $300 bucks. Joel Sherman, I just saw saying that the deal includes a full no trade clause. So Turner is the first marquee shortstop to come off the board. How about that? Well, it's a perfect fit. You know, and then once again, James and I had talked about this before, but in terms of the new rules, his athleticism plays big. He runs the bases, how fast he is, how good of a defender he is. I mean, his all around game just, just really shines. And he's the, uh, for the Phillies, it's exactly what you needed. Somebody like that to plug up right down, right in the middle. 
And that's their model, blue chip players. That's Dave Dombrowski's just going to keep on keeping on. And remember this, when you start talking about big deals and 300 million and are we overpaying? Is this too much money? No sports franchise, no baseball team has ever sold for a loss. Don't feel sorry on the back end. These guys are doing fine. These major league owners are doing fine. They, it's not like the Phillies are going to be sold in five years for, for a massive loss. Their franchise value just went up by signing Turner. They know it. And he's going to be, as I said, just the perfect fit for the Phillies. It ain't your money. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to be scoring tons of runs again. He's a perfect fit for this lineup. And what's interesting to me is the, what it's, it's eye-opening that it's an 11 year deal, right? This, this covers Turner's age 30 to 40 seasons. It's a little steeper than a lot of us would have guessed, but he was, the conversations were around 300 million for a lot of the speculation and and crowdsourcing and then, and what people were guessing that the money was going to be maybe 300 for fewer years. This ends up being for 11 years. So the average annual value on this actually is only about 27 million per year going into this. Maybe people were thinking, you know, North of 30, 35, something like that. So the average annual value in the luxury tax hit is actually a little smaller. So look, this, the, the, the ninth and 10th and 11th year of this contract is not going to sink or swim uh, the final result of how we're going to judge the trade Turner with the Phillies era. It's true. They wanted to spread the cost out. That's exactly why it's 11 years. It's why you brought the average annual value down to keep them, uh, give them a little more maneuverability. That still leaves them. I think, 30 to 35 million short of the second luxury tax threshold. So they still have a little bit of room. And, and, and when you think about that, they, you know, they've probably got some more moves coming. They're probably going to try to go with, try to find some pitching in the middle tier. Somebody like a Jamison Tyone type pitcher that's out there and drawing a lot of interest. So yeah, that that's why you get 11 years to spread the cost out. Yeah. There's more room to grow. Uh, David Dombrowski isn't going to give it up. So I I highly doubt they're done either. Two things that pop into my head as it relates to, I guess, the rest of free agency and the overall landscape uh, after this Turner deal with the Phillies. I want to feel really bad for national fans, not the nationals, but the national fans who are going to have to watch him and Bryce Harper pretty much shove it to them uh, multiple times each season for the better part of the next decade. But also, I don't think, any player is linked to Aaron Judge more now than Carlos Correa. Like his decision is going to be pretty much a result of where Aaron Judge doesn't go, in my opinion. Great point, without a doubt, it, it, including the the prime two markets that are that are vying for Aaron Judge as well. I mean, uh, even Dan O'Dowd said he thought Car- you know Carlos Correa might end up with, as a giant mm-hmm. if if uh, they don't sign Aaron Judge. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it never has a link been more uh, connected between two free agent players playing different positions, by the way, but top tier, top tier free agent players that are, that are obviously connected. Well said, Shaq, definitely right on point. Two more pitchy notes before we close it out here. Uh, Brendan Cuddy, our friend Yankee beat writer for NJ.com. He was the one who reported that Carlos Rodano was looking in the, in the uh, neighborhood of six years, 30 million per. Is there a team out there that gives them six years and that how much cash? I know it only takes one. He's 30 years old. So, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you see 
Justin Verlander at 40 years old get the, the average annual value that he did, you know, it makes you wonder. I mean, that's that's the purpose of the free agency market, right? And free agency to sort of sort these things out. Where does where does his market fit and where are the needs? Uh, he's a very popular guy right now. I think it, the problem the problem with Rodon is not only his injury history, but it's sort of trying to project him down the road if he loses a little velocity because he is such of a, a re, his heavy reliance on high velocity that he's not a guy that has a lot of finesse in his game. You know, he's a bulldog, high fastball and a slider down. Uh, there's there's not a changeup in there. There's not a third or a fourth pitch like I mentioned with Jacob Degrom that I think that he will weather better if he loses a little velocity on down the road. Trying to project Carlos Rodon if he loses a little velocity is a little more difficult. You know, moving moving on down into his mid thirties. Six years is a lot, um, but maybe you could foresee if there is a. a maybe not at thirty million. Maybe at a lower AAV, something to stretch out the years a little more, or if this could be a bidding war, if something like that breaks out, Rodon is the last of the high end starting pitchers. I think there was a clear uh, tier of uh, Verlander, DeGrom uh, and Rodon. And then there's everyone else. Uh, the first two guys are off the board and, and Rodon is left after that. I don't even know who the next best uh, free agent starting pitcher. You get into the the group with Chris Bassett and and Jamison Tyone and Nathan Avaldi. It's uh, I think it's a pretty steep drop from there. So maybe if there becomes a frenzy around Rodon and he can play one team off of the other and get a sixth year, but I think it's it's hard to see right now. Can't hurt in the asking price if you're Carlos Rodon. That's for sure. Start high, start high, baby. Um, Clayton Kershaw. His one-year deal with the Dodgers was made official earlier today as well. One year, $20 million, $5 million of that is a signing bonus. Uh, I'd be shocked if he ever left Los Angeles and that Dodgers uniform at this point. Still just 34. Do you think he's a Dodger for life based on the way he's going here year by year? Well, you never say never, right? Just to sort of cover your tracks. But yes, I agree. I mean, he's going right to Cooperstown as a Dodger. I think he really relishes that. Yeah, I think he understands his place in history. I think he understands Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, Fernando Valenzuela, Oral Hershiser. I think he knows his place in Dodger history. I also think he he wants to exercise some demons too in the postseason. And he wants to win that championship with the Dodgers. And he's had his own checkered postseason history there as well. And it just doesn't match up, right? The guy who's one of the best maybe the best pitcher of his generation, but a checkered postseason history that he, he's got unfinished business there without a doubt. Yeah. I think that matters to him. And it was a little under the radar uh, with the year that the Dodgers are having, but he was fantastic last mm-hmm. season. He, he really bounced back. His ERA was three, five, five in 2021. And I started thinking, Oh, is the end coming for Kershaw? He comes back with a two, two, eight ERA. And you know what? He's 30, he's going to be 35. And I know he's not a workhorse like, like he was in the peak of his prime. But if, if he's a guy who only gives you 120 innings a year from now on, sign me up for that because they're going to be Clayton Kershaw innings. All right, guys, I think that's going to do it for this episode. But again, I mean, hey, we've had two players, big time free agents, ink new deals right in and around the time we were recording this episode. So it's the winter meetings. Anything can happen. We might be back here in the short term. Maybe Aaron Judge signs. We'll get our reaction to that. Uh, maybe it's a Carlos Correa. We'll get our reaction to that as well. But uh, that'll uh, that'll do it.
for this moment in time. You never know, though. Be on standby, all right, guys? That's it. You're on call right now. <laughs> if, if you ever wanted to know what it was like to be a brain surgeon, here it is. Keep that phone handy. Uh, big thanks to Dan O'Dowd for spending some time with us. Uh, again, if there's a monster signing in the coming hours, the coming days, we'll hop on for some quick reaction for you. But uh, until then, enjoy all the rumors, the rumblings here at the winter meetings this week. For David Cohn, James Smythe, our great producer, Dan Rourke, this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next episode, Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn.